Amen. Well, we've been talking about um, baggage for the last few weeks. Doug's been preaching on it for the last five weeks, and he's talked about it a lot of different ways. He's talked about the fact that we all have baggage of some degree, somehow, um, it just it, it comes with the territory. And he's talked about different kinds. He talked about the fact that success can accumulate baggage. He talked about the fact that shame and guilt can pile baggage on top of us and cause us to carry around things that we shouldn't be carried around. He spent some time talking about the woman at the well and and how she had all kinds of things going on. And as she met Jesus and worked through some of those things, how Jesus set her free from that. He talked about religious baggage and how even though we come to church, we can add requirements onto ourselves that, that God never intended for us to take on. Rules and regulations and things that we need to do to earn his love or get him to love us. And how that just creates more baggage that we end up carrying that we don't need to carry. Now, last week we had a panel that, that, you know, just really godly, humble people talk about some of the things that they've had, that they've carried around, that God has worked through in their life, which is really powerful. So there's just really, really good stuff that we've been covering over the last five weeks. This morning, I want to, I want to continue to talk about that. And, and, and I want to talk about it a little bit differently, maybe, because we have a tendency when we talk about baggage, to, to use mental images of what baggage is, right? I mean, baggage is the stuff, and Doug illustrated pulling that stuff through the airport and the train terminal and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and we just see it as, as you know, this, this baggage that we carry, and we just put stuff in it, and we put stuff in it, and we put stuff in it, and it gets heavier, and it gets heavier. It, get, it gets weighed down more and more and more. Um, and, and all we need to do is somehow be able to take that thing off and set it down, and we'll be set free from it, right? And so what we do is we ask God, just let me take this thing off. And so we just, we want to take this baggage off that we're carrying, and we want to just set it down. Ah, feels so good to be set free. But for some reason, it doesn't seem like it's that easy, does it? And we come to the Lord and we go, Lord, take this from me. Take this from me. Take this from me. And it isn't 10 minutes later that we find ourselves doing exactly what we asked him to take from us. Why is that? Give me patience, Lord. 10 minutes later, we're blowing up on something that... Insignificant thing, possibly. Why is it that... We find ourselves more and more and more kind of like Paul when he wrote in Romans 7. He goes, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself continually doing. And he goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Don't we feel like that so often? We go, how do I take this thing off? How do I actually get rid of it? And I think that our mental picture might not be accurate when we think about what baggage really looks like. And I think there's a writer that that, uh, wrote the the book of Hebrews, and we're going to turn to Hebrews 12, because I think how this writer describes it really, in my mind, accurately describes what it's like to actually have what we call baggage. So let's turn to Hebrews 12. If you're like me and you're going, I know it's in the New Testament somewhere, 
you just start working like two-thirds through. So you get through the Gospels and through Acts and Romans and Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, get to the Timothys, keep going, then you'll get to Hebrews. If you get to Revelation, go back. So we're in Hebrews 12, starting with verse 1. It says, therefore, if ever you see therefore in the Bible, you want to know why it's therefore. So in chapter 11, he talks about the hall of faith. All these people that by faith this happened, by faith this happened, by faith this happened. And so he goes, because of all those people of faith, here's what we should do. Because we have all those people surrounding us. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think the writer of Hebrews was way ahead of his time. I think the thing that he talks about is a powerful principle that we really should um, try to understand. Because when we think about, about laying aside every encumbrance, and he says, in the sin which so easily entangles us. See, I think, I, think, I think baggage, rather than baggage being something like this that we just are able to take off and set down, I think baggage is probably more like this. You with me? And so we're not trying to set this thing down. We're trying to untangle this mess. And that's why we keep going, God, take this from me. And he goes, well, I'm going to try. Let me see. I think it's... And, and it, it becomes a challenge. It becomes a challenge. And, and I want to talk about this because it just it amazes me. The, the scripture is inspired. And here is a writer 2,000 years ago writing about sin, which so easily entangles us, that today I think we can understand more clearly than ever before. And I want to unpack that a little bit. And so I really want to talk about, you know, what that means. Because it's going to be kind of cool. I mean, we're all going to be in glory. But 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, who knows what they're going to be reading and go, wow, that makes total sense based on what we knew that we didn't know 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. Anyways, here we are. So, so here's what I want to do. I mean, this, what, is this, what is this entanglement that we get ourselves caught up in? I want to talk this morning just about how we're put together, how we're wired as people. Now, I want to, I want to uh, do a little, um, uh, I want to, I want to um, give a uh, dis disclosure here, okay? I'm going to talk about the human body and different things. Um, I really did not like anatomy in school. So it's not that I didn't like learning about the body. I didn't like having to study everything you had to do to learn about the body. I mean, who the heck wants to memorize all this stuff, right? So... So um, if, if, I, if I say something and you're, you're somebody who actually studied that stuff, just don't look at me too sideways, okay? Have some mercy. But I really do want to talk about this because I think this is really unbelievable. So here, here's some stuff that we, that, that we know about the human body today. It's like we, we have an average of about 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000 thoughts are firing through our brain every day. Some of them are positive thoughts. Some of them are negative thoughts. The researchers have shown that most the majority of our thoughts are actually negative thoughts. 
We have more negative thoughts firing through our brains than positive thoughts. They also have figured, have realized that every one of our thoughts that we think impacts the 37 trillion cells in our body. So every single one of our thoughts impacts every single one of our cells. It impacts our heart rate, it impacts our respiratory rate, it impacts our muscles, it impacts our DNA, it impacts our brain cells. That actually impacts the way that our brain structure is set up and how our brain fires. Every one of our thoughts can in some way um, possibly help us be more healthy physically, or it could possibly cause us to be less healthy physically, because they found that as the synapses fire, they fire chemicals that are supposed to fire the way they're supposed to fire with the right chemical to, to continue, or it can fire a more toxic chemical, which actually could be damaging to our health. So it's amazing the things that we're finding out about the body that we didn't know 2,000 years ago, and there's no way this writer could have known this 2,000 years ago. A couple other things about the brain. The brain's about 3.2 pounds, give or take. It has 100 billion cells. 100 billion cells. 100 billion is like the same amount of stars that you see when you look up at night out someplace outside of LA and you look at the Milky Way galaxy. That's like 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I don't know if you've ever been someplace where it's like black and you look up and you go, oh my God, you are real. I mean, what? it's unbelievable how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy. So that's about the same. So let's kind of look at what this is because each neuron or cell, the, the cells in our brain are neuron cells, so they, they, have a, they have thousands of connections per neuron, okay? Get this. I mean, I, I can't even get my arms around this, but, but there are 500 trillion connections in our brains. No wonder I'm ADD. Ha! <laughs> So, so think about that. 500 trillion synapses are firing all the time. Now, what does that have to do with tangled sin that easily entangles? Let's look at this a little bit. Let's look at a neuron, okay? Let's put a neuron up there. So this is what a neuron looks like for those of you guys that didn't like anatomy either, okay? So it's got a cell body in the middle, the nucleus. They call that the soma. And then coming down the bottom here is what is called a dendrite. The dendrite is like a bunch of branches that come off of a tree. There could be a bunch of dendrites coming off this cell body. And at the top part, there's this thing called the axon. The axon is just one thing that comes out. And when it gets to the end, it has a bunch of synaptic terminals that can touch all kinds of dendrites. So the dendrites pull in the information, goes to the cell body, it processes, it sends it out the axon, and then it disperses it through its axon things to a dendrite that's waiting at the end. That that that's that firing thing between the axon and the dendrite is called a synapse. And so the synapse will fire over and over and over again. Now, one of the things that God has done that's pretty unbelievable is he said, well, you know what? We want to make sure that that synapse fires as, as effectively as possible. So what he did is on that axon, he said, well, I'm going to put something around that thing that will increase the possibilities of it firing more efficiently. Okay, so put up, a, it's called myelin. So put up the thing on that. So this myelin that goes on the axon begins to wrap itself around the axon, which allows it to fire more efficiently um, as it goes through the process of doing whatever it is that our body wants to do. Pick up a pencil, slap our kids, kick a ball, you know, whatever it is, you know. 
Um, it, it allows us to do that more effectively. Now, here's the interesting thing about this myelin and how this myelin works, because they did a study several years ago. There was a book written called The Talent Code, and it was really a, an amazing book. When I, when I was working at Nestle and I was a national sales trainer, um, I was in charge of developing all kinds of stuff. And one of the things I want to do is make sure that our salesmen were performing at the highest level. And so this book talked about the fact that if people, they studied um, people who were performing at a really high level, whether they're a math, mathematician, chess, music, um, athletics. I mean, they covered a bunch of different industries to see how did these people perform at such a high level? And was there anything in common that they did that um, we could learn from? And what they found out, have you guys heard practice makes perfect? Okay, actually that's not true. Okay, so I hate to, to, to you know, pop your bubble, but it's really not true. Because all practice does is make permanent. Because if you're practicing the wrong thing over and over and over and over again, you know what you've done, you've permanently learned how to do it wrong. Right? So, so here's what happens. Perfect practice makes perfect. And what they found is, is that perfect, intensely focused practice increases performance significantly. And so what they found was as, as these top performers were, were practicing, they were so intensely focused for periods of time where they would focus for hours just intensely on what they were learning that these myelin sheaths would wrap around more and more and more and more and more, which allowed it to fire more quickly, more quickly, more quickly, more quickly. And all of a sudden, these, not all of a sudden, these people became um, great at whatever they were doing because of their work ethic and their focus and how their brain was able to fire more effectively as a result of the stuff that they were learning. That is amazing. So, so, so here's the thing. When you, when you start talking about things firing, what's the next screen? So let's go up to the next one. So as, this, as these, these, these neurons are firing, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge that we have. This is kind of a little cutout of what our brain might look like. But, but when you have 500 trillion synapses firing, they're, they're, they're just firing. They're, they're, there's a potential for stuff going every which way. It becomes this tangled mess. I mean, 500 trillion of those things in three pounds. I mean, we have this massive, massive computer system that we have right in here. 500 trillion neurons firing all the time. That is an amazing truth. But here's the problem with that is that if, and I don't know if any of you guys are basketball players, but I was a basketball coach and I have an opinion. It's only opinion. So um, I don't want you going out saying our pastor said this is what happened. Um, if, 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 if you do say that, I'm going I'm to say Doug preached that Sunday. So it doesn't really matter. But, um, but I, you know, the Lakers, the Lakers um, had this really, really good athlete. And he actually was the type of person that intensely practiced. And he became a super, super, superstar. And, and he really liked everybody else to play at his level, which, which they didn't because, one, they didn't have his talent, two, they didn't have his work ethic. But he expected that. And here's the challenge. As he got older and he had more younger players on his team, it was difficult playing with him because he had an expectation of what he wanted them to do and how he wanted them to perform. And every time they would get the ball, and if they would get the ball and they didn't pass it to him, he goes, 
And if they happen to shoot the ball and miss, it was... Now, after a while, you get the ball, and all you want to do is get rid of the ball. Before Kobe... Oh, I said his name. Before Kobe gets mad at you. And if you shot and missed, oh my goodness. So think about the synapses that are firing in this person's brain right now. Oh my gosh, I hope I don't miss. Oh, but, I, but I'm so wide open. I got to take the shot. Why couldn't I take it? Oh, I hope I don't miss. If I miss, I'm going to... And he takes a shot. Who in the heck is going to make that shot? There are so many things firing across the brain, confusing what he's trying to do, rather than having this focused ability to go, I know, I get it, I know what's going to happen, and I, it's just, there's no question about it. We can get so confused because things fire um, in different directions and do different stuff. Now, here's the thing. Why am I saying all that? Because I think the enemy understands that better than we do. I think, I think Satan understands how you are wired. I think he knows uh, what things you're weak in. I think he knows what things you're strong in. I think he knows what things you like. I think he knows what you would be tempted in. I think he knows how to fire different things to get you doing those things. And I think we're clueless that he knows that. And I think he can get us so tangled up before we even knew that he's doing anything because we think that Satan is some guy with a pitchfork and a tail and a red body and we never see him running around, so he must not really be real. And unfortunately, he's just smart enough and real enough that he can do stuff without us even knowing he's doing stuff. And I think he gets us so um, tangled up that it, it becomes a challenge, therefore, to untangle ourselves. And I want to I I be clear. Doug said this last week, and I, I want to I be clear with it. Being tempted is not a sin. You know, the scripture says, you know, be, be tempted, but do not sin. Jesus didn't sin. He was tempted. But... And then temptation becomes action, then it becomes sin. And so we have an enemy that has the capacity to fire stuff in our brain that gets us thinking things and doing things that really are not the way God wants us to do things and to think. And as a result, these things get all confused. And here's the thing. I think there's a picture of a brain because here's how this thing gets tangled. Because it's not just like this one thing. I mean, when we look at this tangled mess and we start saying, well, how, does, how would we get tangled up in sin? How would that become something that gets us all tangled up? Well, just think about it. The, look, at, look at, so the, the red part of the brain is thinking, memory, behavior, and, and, and movement. And then if you go over to the blue, well, that's language and touch. Then you come back over to the middle where the yellow is, and that's the hearing, learning, feelings. You come down here where balance and coordination is, and then the, the brainstem where we're breathing, heart rate, temperature, all that stuff. So, so synapses are firing into to neurons going different places in your brain to connect to different things that, that happen that get us um, locked in to this, to this, this network of, of uh, tangled um, behavior. And here's, here's kind of an illustration of how it might work. So, so we visually see something, and we like it, and so we, we go back to a memory that we had that was really a good memory about what we saw, which goes over to something that we say to ourselves about how good it was, which goes back to us hearing how good it was, which goes down to our breathing and our heart rate because we got really excited and emotionally involved in it, and we really liked that. And all of a sudden, we've had, we've had neurons fire into like four or five different places in our brains. 
And, and this is kind of how things get all tangled up. And the enemy is really good at getting our feeling and our hearing and our touch and our senses and our emotions all put together to cause us to do stuff that maybe we know we wouldn't want to do, but we do it anyway. And then we, we can't stop because now all these things are connected. And it's impacting us in a way that is emotionally attached. It becomes a, a, a real network of tangled stuff that causes us to behave in ways and then it makes it difficult for us just to take it off and set it down because there's too many things now that we're trying to detach in order for us to begin to move forward in a behavior that is more positive. Are you guys with me? So, so let me make this less confusing and let me make it more practical and let me kind of see if I can illustrate it in a way that might make sense. Now, I'm going to use a couple of illustrations, and I may use I, I may use we, I may use whatever. If I use I, I'm really not talking about me, okay? Uh, although it may sound exactly like you think I may behave, I, I'm not actually talking about me. If I'm using something as an illustration that you say, wow, that's exactly like me, I'm not talking about you, okay? Your spouse didn't come and tell me that I should say this. So if it fits, then that's between you and the Lord, but I'm not talking about you, just so you, you understand that, Okay. So I really want to make sure that's clear so I don't get in trouble here. But let's use this as an example. So I, I, I'm doing something, I make a mistake. I do something that is just, that, that I, it's just a mistake, okay? And, and I think it was dumb that I did it. It was just dumb that I did it. And you know what I do? I tell myself how stupid I am. You are so stupid. How could you be so stupid? Nobody does anything that stupid. I mean, you do that all the time. So, so here's what's happening, right? I'm firing some synapses in my brain. Okay, I'm, I'm talking to myself about things that I did and I'm, I'm identifying myself with the behavior. So now I am that behavior and I'm emotionally attached to it. I'm, I'm thinking it and then I'm verbalizing it and then I'm hearing what I'm verbalizing and then I'm feeling what I'm hearing what I'm verbalizing. And now it is implanted emotionally in me. And all the things I'm saying... Are, are, are not true because I may have done something that was a mistake, but did God create me an idiot? So if I'm created in the image of God, is God an idiot? Yeah, I mean, even sometimes we say he's an idiot, but he really isn't, right? So, so here's the confusion now. I have this tangled mess of how I'm seeing myself that is not in the image of God, and now I'm beginning to create myself in this tangled mess of inner insecurity behavior. And then I wonder why when somebody comes up and says something to me, especially somebody that I'm close to and I love, that sounds like it's criticism, I get reaction. I go, oh, and all of a sudden I, I react. I go, what was that all about? You know, you hear people say, well, they know how to push your buttons. Okay, no, nobody can push your buttons. But what happens is you've entangled yourself in so much emotional stuff that somebody says something which triggers all those synapses that you've been firing for the last who knows how many years and it just fires them because you've reinforced those myelin sheaths over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and now you really believe that's true about you. Okay, so that's probably not you. It's probably me, but let me do another one. So... Married couple, you're at home and, and you're interacting with each other and you've been married for a while and you're realizing now that you're married that you guys aren't as much alike each other as you were. I mean, it's like the, almost you're o almost opposites. I mean, what's this bizarre thing about opposites attracting each other? I don't get it. 
but you're finding out that, wow, she's not at all like me. He's not at all like me. I mean, I ask him, how's he doing? He goes, fine. I ask her how she's doing. She goes, well, you know, I woke up this morning and I had breakfast and then I did this and then I really felt bad because my shirt didn't really match my pants. And then I did this and then I did this and then I'm going, okay, well, well, time out. Just wanted to know how your day went. You say, fine or not fine. That's good. You know, why, why doesn't she get that when I'm watching the football game, I'm not going to talk to her while I'm watching the football game because I'm watching the football game. I can't listen to her and listen to the football game at the same time. Why doesn't she wait till the football game's over? Then talk to me. I don't get it. Why won't he talk to me? I mean, he only just says, yeah, it's so good. Oh, I had a good day. I mean, he don't want to even talk to me. He won't tell me how he's feeling. He won't, I just don't get it. And so all of a sudden there's this tension because, because we, we don't get each other. We don't know why we don't, we're not getting along. And, and, and so all of a sudden, we're, we're starting to fight about stuff. We're starting to pick at each other. And, and it's just not a fun place to be anymore. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm leaving work and I'm thinking, you know, I want to watch a football game. And I don't want to have to put up with her while I'm watching the football game. So I'm going to stop and watch a football game somewhere else. And so I pull into this place and I go and I watch the football game. Well, as long as I'm watching the football game, I might as well have a drink. I can't just stay here for free. So I might as well at least pay my rent. So I'll have a drink and then I meet this guy next to me and we start talking and we have fun rooting for the football game. And it really starts feeling good. You know, all, zoot, zoot, all, these, all these synapses are firing. Well, I, don't, I really don't like things at home. We're not getting along, but this is so much more fun. And now I can watch the game and I can enjoy myself. And this guy's pretty cool. And we understand the same thing. It's just, it's so much more fun. And I can kind of unwind so when I get home, I'm just a more mellow guy, you know? And then the next day I'm coming home from work and I go, you know, that really felt good. I like that. I, you know, if I stopped, it would probably be better for my wife. So when I got home, I'd just be a better guy. And then all of a sudden it's Thursday night football and, you know, we got to watch the football game. So I'm just going to stop and watch the football game. Well, you know, Sunday is probably better if I watch it there than here because you know, it just avoids the conflict. And all of a sudden, we have these synapses firing, and we're emotionally attaching ourselves to rationalization and things that we don't want to fix and things that we, want to, we don't want to resolve. And it starts feeling good, and we start attaching our emotions to things that we're rationalizing and things that we're lying to ourselves about. So we're, we begin getting tangled up in a behavior that we're thinking is okay, and we're thinking is good, and we're thinking nobody really cares about because it's only me that I'm affecting. And it may not be you're stopping there to get a drink. And maybe you turn on your computer to do this because it really feels good to do that. And women, you may be meeting with three other people and somehow the conversation just gets around to our husbands. And you know how messed up our husband is? Man, he won't do this and he won't do that and he is so lazy. And well, you should see what my husband said and you should see what my... And all of a sudden that feels really good. And we should just have like a woman's tea every Wednesday because it feels really good to be able to get together and do that. And then I can go home and I just feel better because I got it off my chest. But what's really happening is we're firing all of these messages to our brain that's telling us that this is, this is acceptable behavior and we're starting to create relationships that are unhealthy relationships at home. And somehow we think that nobody's going to find out about it. But the challenge is that, you know, and I think it was shared last week that, you know, we have a tendency to want to hide things when we're doing stuff that's unacceptable. We want to lie about it. And we want to make sure nobody finds out about it. But the reality is, is eventually it does come up. And the longer it takes to come up, the more painful it is when it does come up. I mean, you've been hiding that from me all this time. So these things fire. 
And they create behavior that is unhealthy behavior. It's a tangled network of sin that we create that's all about me, revolving around me and what makes me feel better. Let me give you another one that may be more socially acceptable. I grew up in a family that really loves me. They care a lot about me. I mean, they care so much about me that they always want to make sure that what I'm doing, I'm doing right. So everything I do, they correct me. Well, if you do it this way, it'd be a lot better. Well, if you just did this, this, and this would be a lot better. Well, if you just did it this way, it'd be a lot better. You know, your room looks good, but man, if you folded your clothes like this and put them over here, it would be so much better. I mean, if you made your bed this way, it'd be so much better. And it just seems like I can't do anything right. Zit, zit, zit. Here are all these synapses firing in my brain. That nothing is good enough. Doesn't matter what I do, it's not good enough. Zit. Zit, zit. And yet, even though my parents love me, I don't feel loved. Zit, 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 zit. These connections are being made. And it's not that they're not loving me, but it's I don't feel loved. And if I don't feel loved, those synapses that are firing in my emotions are going to tell me that you're not loved, that you're not cared for, that you're not good enough. And then, then all of a sudden, I begin to have that that firing in my own mind. So everything I do, I get into my career and I do, I do projects and the projects are praised by everybody, but I know that I made three mistakes in that project. Nobody else knows, but I know. And so I am picking at that project and I go, I know that was bad and that was bad and that was bad. Because I know, I know, those things are firing. And then, then I get married. And that this, this spouse of mine that is the spouse of my dreams, I don't know what happened, but somehow he or she can't seem to do anything right. How could they have gotten so incompetent in such a short window of time? Right? Because those things are firing. They're firing. We've learned to fire our synapses in that way. And now we're looking for everything that's wrong with everything. All of a sudden, our kids can't do anything right. We love them. We love them. But we're going to fix all this stuff so that they could be better because we really want to be better. And now our kids are going, well, my parents are great, but man, I don't feel loved. And we're wondering why we're so miserable. And then we go, Lord, take this away from me. Lord, take this away from me. I don't want to be so picky. But, but it, it's not that easy now. We got we to gotta be able to change what we're doing. We got to be able to take this tangled mess that we've created and allow, allow God to, to, to untangle it. Now, in case you're thinking I'm being too humanistic, let's, let's read the Bible. Okay? We are going to read the Bible. Okay? So let's go to Genesis. If you thought Hebrews was bad, Genesis is easy. In fact, it's Genesis 3, so you can't get it much easier than that. Unless you get hung up in the first few pages that have the outline and all that kind of stuff, but just go through there. Because I want to be able to look at Genesis 3 in the context of what we're talking about, because this is interesting. Well, let's, go, let's start with chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 16... It said that, that the Lord God commanded the man. So God told Adam, he said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Pretty clear, right? Now, I, I don't know, post-fall or, or, or pre-fall, uh, probably more post-fall than pre-fall, but I don't know. But... Um, Human nature is this. 
If you walk by a bench and there's a sign on that bench that says wet paint, what do you have to do? You, you have got to touch that bench to see if that paint really is wet, right? If you go by a slab of cement that was freshly poured and you know it's freshly poured and you go by that slab and you look at it and what do you have to do? Yes, you got to put your initials in it or your handprint in it or something in it. Then Randy comes and he goes, oh, who is that? I got to get that fingerprint. We have to do that. So think about this and I'm speculating, okay? So, so don't go be telling people that this happened. This is speculation, okay? So God tells Adam, you cannot eat this fruit. Adam tells Eve, you cannot eat this fruit. So they're walking around the garden, and Adam asks Eve, what do you want to do today? And Eve goes, you know what? Why don't we walk by that tree? You know, I just, I'm just curious. And so they walk by the tree in the middle of the garden, and they go, oh, man, that looks pretty good. And they move on, and they eat fruit off the other tree and stuff like that. And I don't know how long they're in the garden. Maybe it was three millennials later that, um, you know, Eve asks Adam, what do you want to do today, Adam? And he goes, you know, can we see, why don't we just go by the backside of that tree? Because I really would be curious to see what the backside of that tree looks like. So they wander down the backside of the tree. And then, you know, a while later, they go, what do you want to do today? You know, I think we should have a picnic. You know, we should probably have a picnic. And I think the best place for a picnic is in the middle of the garden. You know, because it's just it's in the middle of everything. And besides, I just want to check out that tree a little bit more. Now, I don't know if that happened. Now, I know if it was me, it would happen. And maybe some of you. But I don't know if it happened with them, but I do know this happened. Chapter 3, verse 1, somehow they were there. Now, whether this is the very first time they were there, which I doubt... Or they've been there a bunch of times and now they just happen to be hanging out there. But they were there and the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. He understood how to work our system. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, first of all, is that what God said? No, what did God say? It says you can eat from any tree of the garden except this one, Right? So the first thing that happens is the enemy tries to get our brain firing negative messages. Is this what God said? Well, yeah, I think maybe that is what God said. I'm not quite sure. And so now we've got these things firing in our brain that's creating doubt to what God really said. And then Eve goes, um, the woman said to the serpent in verse 2, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. Correct. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Is that what God said? No, God said, don't eat from it. Did he say anything about touching it? No, if I was God, I would have said, don't touch it because I'm smart. Because do you tell your kids, don't eat that cookie, but it's okay to hold on to it. <laughs> yeah, you can hang on to it. You can look at it and, you know, just don't eat it. Okay. So, so, but he didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. So here's the thing. We're firing all these messages that are inaccurate messages about who God is and what God says. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. So now there's doubt being fired into our thought process about what God really said and can God really be trusted. 
And then he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now some things are firing in our brains. So, wow, I could be like God. Wow, I could be bigger than I am. Wow, I could be better than I am. Wow, I really don't have to follow God's leading. And all this stuff is starting to happen. And sin now is entering, the potential of sin is entering this tangled mess. Now, has Eve sinned yet? No, she is just being tempted. But how many sensory um, parts of her brain is the enemy already sending signals to? Ton of them, 60,000, and in all kinds of different parts of her brain, getting her to think about stuff that isn't at all what God said or who God is. This is the stuff that happens in our lives, you know, potentially on a daily basis. So when the woman, now look at this, talking about synapses firing, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, emotionally attaching herself to this fruit now, this is a delightful thing. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So this is gonna make me something that's better than what God said I was gonna be. This allows me to be more like God. All of us want to have control. All of us want to run the show. I mean, am I the only one who gets mad at God when he screws up things? You know, I mean, that's, that's the stuff that God wants to weed out of us. And so, so then she took the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband. And like we, we learned last week, what happens when we do things that we shouldn't do? It says their eyes were open, they knew their position, they knew what they were like. And then in verse 8, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking, and it says the wife and the, and the man hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. What's the first thing that happens when we start getting tangled up in sin? We try to hide it. We think God doesn't notice. God knows everything that we do, and then we try to hide it from each other, figuring that it'll never find out. And it's amazing to me, people that are caught up in, sin, in sinful behavior who think their kids don't know that they're doing that. I mean, people who are alcoholics who come home drunk and think their kids don't know they're alcoholics. It is baffling. But we do that. We lie to ourselves. We try to hide it from other people. So they tried to hide it from the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, so what'd you do? And he said, well, I heard you guys and I found out I was naked. He goes, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? He goes, well, yeah, but the woman who you gave to me, she's the one who gave me it and I ate it. So it's your fault. So not only do we try to hide it, but then we try to rationalize it. It's got to be somebody else's fault because we want to keep doing what we're doing and we want to make it okay for us to do what we're doing. And so now more synapses are firing to allow us to continue the behavior that we know is not the right behavior, but somehow we have to justify it. And then he says to the woman, so what happened? And she goes, well, she, that serpent, man, he, he messed it up. So here are two people that, 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 that got caught up in, in allowing sin to entangle them because they listened to messages that were the wrong message. Let me do one more real quick, as long as we're on a roll. Let's turn to, to 2 Samuel, very, very um, familiar book, very familiar passage. But I want to look at it in the context of what we're talking about and how we can get so tangled up by the synapses of our brain firing and creating behavior in us that causes us to do things that, that we really would probably not do otherwise. So verse chapter 11 of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, um, maybe a third of the way through. It says, then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. 
Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now I want to stop there for a minute because um, I'm in this speculative mood anyway. So we might as well speculate a little bit about this story. Um, I, I just don't know. Why would David wake up in the evening? He's sleeping or he's in bed. Why would he get up and walk around on his roof? Now, I just wonder if that's the first time he's ever gotten up and walked around on his roof at night or maybe earlier in the, in the evening, or maybe he saw something down there as well. It looks like a bathtub down there. I wonder if anybody ever takes a bath. I mean, I wonder how many times he walked around and saw something and he goes, huh. And then, then he says, well, I wonder if she's taking a bath tonight. And he got up and walked around. And I wonder if she's, uh, I don't know. But, but we do know that he saw this person taking a bath and, and he just didn't go, wow, there's a woman taking a bath and then turn away from it. He goes, wow, there's a woman taking a bath and I'm gonna stare long enough to see how pretty she is. So here are synapses firing because he took time to allow things to happen in his brain that he didn't really need to take time to do. This wasn't a casual glance. This was him taking the time to notice that she was a beautiful woman. And so because of that, now he's got, he's got, he's got himself emotionally attached to this thing. And when evening, and so he sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, so, so now it's not just a beautiful woman, it's a beautiful married woman. Okay, now let me, let me talk a little bit um, about um, this firing of our brain cells. David is king. Okay, I want you to understand this. David is king of the most powerful nation in the world. David says, Joab, you go to battle, you take the entire army out to battle, and Joab goes to battle. David says to this messenger, you do that, and the messenger does that. David says to this concubine, you come to me, and she comes to me. David says to this wife, you come to me, and she comes to me. David says to this servant, you do this, and they do that. David says to this person, you do this, and they do that. Nobody says no to David. David has fire and synapses that say, what I say, go. What I, what I say happens. I'm the one who makes things happen. I say it and it becomes reality. I am in control. I'm the one who makes the decisions. People do what I say. And so he has this stuff firing in his brain, and this is how his brain is working. Good, bad, or indifferent. I just want, I want to have that context because now David is seeing something and he is used to getting what he sees. And I think in some ways he wasn't even connecting things at that point in time. He was just so used to getting what he wants that he says, well, just bring her. What's the big deal? And so she comes and he lays with her and the big deal was that he got her pregnant. And now what happens is what happens when we get entangled, when sin so easily entangles us. So David gets her pregnant. He goes, oh, this is not good. So we have to figure out how we can hide this, right? Because that's what we do when we get tangled up in sin. We try to hide it. And so he says, well, let's get her husband back from the battlefield, and so he gets Uriah to come back from the battlefield. And Uriah comes to him and he goes, wow, Uriah, how's everything going in the battlefield? How's Joab, man? Everything okay? I mean, it's like, I just care about you, Uriah. I just care about how you're doing. Why don't you just go have dinner with your wife and spend the night with her? And Uriah messes it up. It's such a perfect plan. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. 
How could I go to battle when my friends, I mean, how could I lay with my wife when my friends are on the battlefield? How can I sleep on my own bed when my commander is sleeping out, in the, out on the ground? So he doesn't. He lays outside. And David goes, oh. people go, David, he didn't go in. Man, well, let's do this. Let's get him drunk because we know that any man who's drunk certainly would want to go in with his wife. So he gets him drunk and Uriah goes, no, not going to do it. Still doesn't do it, and David is beside himself, so he goes, oh, I only have one choice. He writes a letter, and he gives it to Uriah. I mean, this is like the worst of the worst of the worst that you, that you could even think of. But he, he was so now caught up in having to protect himself. He is so entangled in this thing that he gives Uriah a letter to give to Joab that says, when, you, when, when Uriah comes back, I, I mean, he's given him the, his death sentence. He gets to carry his own death sentence. And Joab is told, go into battle, take Uriah into the battle, find the, the most fierce part of the battle. And when you're in the most fierce part of the battle, fighting against the most valiant people, pull everybody back except Uriah. So here's David. David is now entangled. Bathsheba in his mess. His messenger's in his mess because he sent his messengers to go get Bathsheba. He's entangled Uriah in his mess. He's entangled Joab in his mess. And it says in Scripture that, that many men died while they were in that fierce battle with Uriah. So not only did he entangle Joab, but Joab had to send people into this battle that got killed. And then the ones who didn't had to pull out so he would get killed. So now he entangled a whole bunch of other families who are mourning their husbands because David is trying to cover his sin. And then Bathsheba mourns and then he makes him his wife. Listen, when we get tangled up in sin, it doesn't only impact us. It impacts a lot of people around us. And when we lie to ourselves and, and tell ourselves, hey, this is just my problem, it's not. But, but the thing I want us to understand as we look at this is how easily sin entangles us. And, and without, I mean, when we, when we understand how our brain works, man, it, it's easy to go on. No wonder it's so hard to be able to take this baggage and just lay it down because it's not that simple because it's firing here emotionally, it's firing here physically, it's firing here in this area, it's firing here in that area, and it's, ca it's touching so many parts of our being, spiritual, emotional, social, psychological, physical. I mean, there's so many parts of us that are being impacted by this one behavior that, that we can't just go, okay, set it down. It's more complicated than that. So you're probably saying, okay, well, that's really the bad news. What's the good news? I said, well, the good news is that we're out of time. And um, next week, we're going to talk about the solution. So yeah, I got to come next week. Sorry. <laughs> the bad news, I'm preaching again next week. So, but the good news is I know what we're going to talk about, and it's good. Hopefully, you know, what we learn next week is how, how do we become people who don't have sin that so easily entangles us and live a life that's free. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are God. You created us in your image and you have a plan for us. It's a great plan. And you um, have prepared us to participate in your plan. And Lord, you've wired us so that we could be people who are able to participate fully in your plan. And Lord, we want to um, continue to understand how, how that happens in us, how we use this, this amazing computer that you put in our brain to glorify your name and to be used by you to further your kingdom. 
and to be used by you to further your purposes in this world. And we really are, are excited.